Hello, you're listening to the Heavenly Chi podcast, episode number 15. Today we're discussing 10 things we think every practitioner should know. Hey everybody, I'm Fee Gitchum. And I'm Claire Pyers. Today we're talking about 10 things we think every practitioner should know. The Heavenly Chi podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment and professional development. Show notes and continuing professional development resources are found at www.heavenlychipodcast.com. You can add Heavenly Chi podcast to your favorite RSS feed or iTunes or on Stitcher. You can also follow us on Facebook. All links are in the show notes. We hope you enjoy today's show. Welcome to today's episode and today Claire and I are discussing with each other a list of 10 things that we've come up with that through our years of experience we have found really valuable and had to eventually work out. Um, so this is always a really useful conversation we found between practitioners amongst each other and we're really interested in hearing from you as well what kinds of things you would add to this list or if you think we've missed anything. Yeah so um, the 10 things are and I guess we've only got you know one episode worth to, right. <laughs> to discuss it all so we won't be able to go into all of this in too much detail. Some of these topics could be an entire episode on their own. The first thing on my list was that it's really important to get on good terms with your cosmic receptionist. And what we mean by that is that sometimes it's like there are external forces at play that just kind of work things out for you. You think, oh man, I'm really tired or I've got a really bad headache and then all of a sudden you'll get five patients ring up and reschedule and all of a sudden you're, you know, your appointment book just looks so much more manageable. And then sometimes also you'll have, you'll have a day when you think, ah, oh, you know, I'd really love, you know, I, I really need to have some new patients coming in or I, I want to have my appointment book a bit fuller. And the phone rings and you've got five patients that just all book in for the next, you know, one or two days and your appointment book from, can go from being quite empty to being quite full. And I, I attribute that to my cosmic receptionist. There is like a a force that's um, bigger than me and she coordinates all kinds of things for me. And so I think um, she's really awesome and I give her praise all the time. Yeah, I think this one really comes into play and it can come into play in so many ways. Um, obviously the first thing on my mind is last week I had an absolutely terrible headache and I don't usually get headaches. And I didn't have a very busy day but I did have a, a number of patients booked in and somehow they just rearranged themselves so that I could go home after lunch and that was really great. Um, and then in another way I've observed that um, my bookings also tend to change according to my menstrual cycle mm. and it's really interesting because it, it used, it's shown me something in the level of giving me what I need rather than what I want or what I think I want and one of those was that if I was asked, I'd rather not be super busy on the first day of my period. And yet on this day, I'm usually booked out to the max. <laughs> and yet over years of doing it, I've realized that 
despite what I think about how I'm feeling, I, I actually have a stronger sense of insight on that day and I can get through the day even if I feel somewhat more internal or less like engaging with people. And it seems as though my treatments are really effective on that day. So after having years worth of just being really, really busy on the day of my period, I then was less resistant of that and started to realise, oh, well, that's going to happen and maybe I just have more magnetism at that time as well. I think there's something else that comes into play too and that is when we want to be busy but something in us is somehow undermining that energetically or either afraid of or, or undervaluing our skills are somehow not confident about it and then the patients won't necessarily come. So even if you are feeling, for example, not really focusing on your clinic or your business, um, but wanting your business to be busy, also fin for financial reasons, wanting your business to be busy, but not really focusing on it or putting the energy on it and, and actually wanting to be doing other things or just feeling lazy and being like, yeah, it would be great to have a day off. It'd be great to have every day off. And the next thing you know, you're going to have every day off. <laughs> so, uh, I be think, careful what you ask for. Yeah. I think there's a really big connection with, how our appointment book runs and looks with uh, what we're really asking for deep down mm. and um, those things will adjust themselves in reflecting the internal reality. Yeah. So number two on the list. Number two on the list, learn how to treat pain really effectively. You need to have your patients leaving your clinic pain-free. Well, ideally they're pain-free before you even leave the room, but um, if you can't achieve that, then at least um, aim to have their pain significantly reduced. What I've found over the years is that if your patients are amazed, then they're more likely to, you know, to listen to your treatment plan and to continue with the treatment plan and also to refer uh, friends and loved ones. I think that if you haven't worked out a way with your acupuncture to get to really nail the whole pain thing, even if you don't, even if you don't treat musculoskeletal stuff, if all you do is treat digestive pain or if all you do is treat fertility, you're going to have patients who come in and they've got pain, they've got a stiff neck, they've got a headache, they've got period pain, stomach cramps, um, and learning how to treat you know and have to have that expectation that acupuncture is going to get rid of their pain and that have an expectation that a hundred percent of their pain is going to be removed by the treatment um, I think setting really high standards for yourself as a clinician does encourage you to get better results and that that's something that will make a big difference to your practice Hmm. I think there's also a lot of patients that do try acupuncture for the first time because of pain. So, you know, if they get a really good result from that, then they're, they're going to be open to everything else we have to say. Like the number of times I've had someone come in for the sore knee or the sore shoulder or the sore lower back and they've got so many other things that they need Chinese medicine for to help them with and yet they're not really aware that Chinese medicine offers that. Um, and that would be our doorway that we go through first is, well, let's see what we can do about this pain. And then if you're getting results, then yeah, definitely they'll be more likely to trust you about the rest of the things you have to say, such as 
why is this pain here in the first place? Mm. And what can we do about that? Yeah. Yeah, and it's not to say that, you know, it's a one-treatment miracle cure, that you get rid of their pain, it's gone forever. But having an expectation that that acupuncture will get rid of their pain and, you know, the pain pattern might change or the pain relief might last for a certain period of time and you would expect that that pain relief period would extend with each subsequent treatment. And I give that to my patients as their homework. I say, right, your homework is to pay attention to, you know, how long you feel good for, you know, how long until the pain comes back and that we space the treatments accordingly and eventually the pain will will go away. Mm. I, I generally see probably a miracle a month in the sense of, you know, you treat someone one time and it gets rid of their thing forever. Um, and so in general terms I tell patients don't expect a miracle. They do happen sometimes. We get about one a month. We may have already had our miracle for the month. <laughs> so... <laughs> But I think that's a really important, really important thing. I don't think that's <clears throat> that certainly wasn't stressed enough to me when I was at school learning acupuncture that that you could expect someone's pain to disappear instantly. Yeah, I think it's quite radical that most of us are aware of um, you know situations in China where acupuncture was used as an anaesthetic for surgery. And, you know, this is so, seems so radical to me anyway. And we weren't taught those techniques, but just as a testament to how effective acupuncture can be Mm. for pain and and how immediately that can take effect. So that brings us to point number three. Yes, three out of ten. These are not in order of importance, by the way. Don't undertreat your patients. Yeah, I think that's really important too. And there's often a conversation to be had in the beginning with the patient where you're going to find out what they're coming for, what their plan is for what they think Chinese medicine and acupuncture is going to offer them. And then you get to inform them of what you think Chinese medicine and acupuncture can do for them and then find that place whereby they're going to get the most out of what they're coming for Um, and often in that case as well I find that that might also expand their um, decision about what they're going to come for treatment for and how long they're going to come for treatment. And I think even on a really basic level it's about setting out a treatment plan for your patients, whether you do that verbally or whether you do that in a written format, so that you're not just kind of, you know, dropping your patients off at the reception desk or, you know, even doing your own payments and and rebookings, that, um, you know, the patient has guidance around when you think they need to come back. If, you know, do you think it's a one treatment deal? In which case then say, hey, I don't expect that I need to see you again for, you know, or come back only in these circumstances, but the majority of the time you want to see someone a few times so that you can consolidate improvement and assess their um, their improvement and to um, to boost up their mm-hmm. health to you know get rid of what they came in for. Um, and I see a lot of times, um, or I have seen a lot of cases in the past where 
practitioners are reluctant to rebook patients in um, or, you know, a patient that really needs herbs or really needs nutritional advice and it's not given for, you know, for some reason. I think you need to offer what you've got to offer to your patient and say these are the things, you know, A, B, C, that are going to give you the best outcome and patients will then tell you, hey, you know what, I'm not really into herbs, I can't see myself taking them or, you know, I'm not going to change my diet or I can only come for acupuncture once a month. But you need to offer that to your, you need to offer your full treatment to your patients in order for them to be able to have an understanding of what the full treatment is. Otherwise, they're getting undertreated because you've made assumptions about what you think they can handle or what you think that they are willing to do. Sure. I think some of that also comes under scheduling as well, just in terms of how we run our schedule and all the different techniques that can be incorporated within acupuncture. I mean, if you if you have a patient where what's appropriate is to just put in the needles and leave the room and very little talk and not much homework, that's sort of easy on you in terms of time. But if you have a patient that really needs a whole bunch of needling and gua sha and cupping and moxa and a bit of tuinar and then they need a whole file sent to them about their diet, you know, um, it's important to be able to manage ourselves so that we can give everything that's really required to make that a complete treatment for that patient on that day. Yeah, and, you know, that may that may mean that you spend longer with them and, you know, that comes down to nitty-gritty stuff like do you charge more for a longer consult? Do you split that kind of thing into two separate consults or do you charge extra if you're doing... Um, you know, consulting and homework in between time if you spend two hours collating information for a patient outside of their treatment time, how do you, or do you charge for that? How do you treat, mm. how do you charge for that? Well, I think one of the ways that that works really well in this clinic is we have a lot of pre-written files, especially for nutrition and diet. So if I want someone to be doing a specific diet, I already have it pre-written mm. and I just send that to them, yeah. copy and paste it into the email and send it. Um, and that can be a really worthwhile thing earlier on in your practice or at any point if you don't have it is to put the time in to actually develop your resources in your files that you have to send to people so that you don't find yourself having to repeat yourself a lot mm. and even looking at doing that perhaps on video yeah because yeah. there's so many conversations that we'll end up having you know 12 times a week yeah little snippets of, of details um, and so we can also look at ways in which we can send them that outside of the treatment time and it keeps the information consistent and it enables you to then tick off on a checklist so that you've told, you know, you've got, um, you know, for example, with fertility, there might be six or seven things, you know, you want them to know how to do BBT charting, you want them to know how to how to um, track their menstrual cycle and know when their fertile time is, you want them to be following a particular diet and sometimes, you know, if you're seeing a lot of patients, it can be easy to forget or um, to think that you've told someone something and you haven't or you've given them information in a way that's not 
um, that hasn't been received clearly by them and so yeah. I think that that's yeah I've been thinking about that one a lot lately because I I know it happens to me and I've seen it as well on the acupuncture forums where someone where basically we we give information to our patient especially in the first consult and then we give them acupuncture and then they go into a totally different space and they're all relaxed and part of that I find is that often they forget at least half of what we've discussed mm. and so ways to overcome that for me have become to put really important aspects of that information into an email and send it to them and then uh, to check in with them that they've read it and also providing them information in forms where they can actually go back to it and regather that information whether or not it's the written article on you know how to do their particular diet or something like that so I think it's a little bit of an occupational hazard for us that we give people information we expect them to remember it but then we give them acupuncture and they go in, <laughs> going they to just get really zone. relaxed <laughs> What yeah. was that thing again? Something about my liver and my spleen, my kidneys. And then they will need to go home and discuss it with their partner as well, especially if it's fertility. And they say, oh, I, I don't know, something about this and that. And <laughs> so I think this is a pretty key area that all of us could possibly improve what we're doing with um, because it, it is I see it as an occupational hazard. Yeah. They're just not going to retain what we say, especially if the acupuncture is good. Yeah, and the outcome is that they get undertreated. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Number four, leave your own issues and concerns about money out of your clinical decision-making. Um, I guess this ties in with the previous one to a certain extent. Um, but, yeah, I've, I've seen where practitioners will make an assessment are based on what they think a patient wants to spend their money on, what they don't want to spend their money on. They say, oh, this person can't afford this or this person can't afford that. They haven't necessarily asked the patient if that's true. The patient hasn't necessarily volunteered and say, hey, I've only got this amount of, this is my budget for this and this is, you know, this is how I need to try and work with you. But, I, yeah, I've seen cases where... Um, where practitioners will will avoid, and yet this comes into, it can create an under-treatment trap, but where, um, where you avoid giving a patient the option for full treatment based on assumptions around their financial capacity. And in actual fact, a lot of the time, that has more to do with the practitioner's own issues with money and their own issues with abundance and has nothing to do with the patient. Mm. How often do you ask the patient about their budget in in the initial consults? I don't, unless they bring it up, unless they say, you know, money's really tight for me or, you know, they let me know about their circumstances. Um, I give patients really clear outlines on what I think will happen in terms of treatment frequency treatment duration, whether I think they need herbs. If they do need herbs, what are the most effective ways of doing that from a time point of view, from a cost point of view? I've had patients say to me, you know, I can't afford much in terms of treatment. And I've, and I, you know, work with these patients. I've had, I can give you examples of patients where 
They say, look, I can only come and see you this amount of time. I can only spend this amount of money. I say, great, we're doing this with diet. This is what you need to do with your diet. This is, you know, one supplement that's going to make a difference and it's going to cost you, you know, $15 a month. The rest you'll do with diet. They come back to me in a month or two time and they say, you know what, it's really hard. I can't do it that way. Just I will find the money. Just just help me with herbs. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, I will come more frequently for acupuncture. I will find the money. I will make it work. Mm. So I, I don't bring it up unless they bring it up. And even if they do bring it up, then sometimes they don't realise that doing it the cheap way, you know, it generally there's the easy way is not cheap and then the cheap way is not easy. Yeah. And some people, despite what they might say out loud, are unwilling to do it the cheap way because they're looking for, they're looking for assistance and sometimes that's, you know, that's what costs the money is the assistance, either in terms of consultation fees or in terms of, herbal medicine, nutritional supplements. Yeah, I used to ask people more frequently in the first consult um, what type of budget they were hoping to work with and now I do it less often. I sort of wait and see if there is a cue somewhere um, from them to have that conversation. But sometimes if I also see a cue when I start discussing herbs and supplements and diet and things like that, um, whereby I'll first offer to say, well, look, I don't really want to be giving you more than five things at once. If I can't cover this in five things, and one of them is going to be a Chinese herbal formula and the other might be supplements or, or a special diet additions or considerations, um, yeah, if I can't do this within five things, then I don't really know what I'm trying to do. Um, and usually I find that that also uh, is something that they might be queuing rather than the cost of it, but more so they're looking at, well, you know, are you going to give me 12 things? Am I going to be taking 45 tablets every day? Because <laughs> I don't really want to be doing that. Mm. Yeah. I think the cue for that, uh, can often get confused with the cue for the budget. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I've seen, you know, and I'm sure we've all seen cases like this where people have come in and they've been to see a naturopath or a kinesiologist or a chiropractor or someone who's, you know, been assessing their need for supplements and their supplement list keeps growing and growing and, you know, they're taking 12 things and they still feel terrible and, um, and sometimes they're the best cases because, you know, from a nutritional point of view, all their bases have been covered. They've been taking all the supplements for long enough that they're actually not deficient in any of those minerals or any of those vitamins anymore. And all they need is to get their chi pathways going and, you know, a simple acupuncture treatment plan and, you know, a basic Chinese herbal formula can, you know, can really knock some of these, you know, chronic fatigue conditions and mm -hmm. um, mysterious illnesses can really knock it on their head in a really cheap way. Yeah, I think that's always my first port of call anyway, being a Chinese med practitioner primarily, mm -hmm. is that, well, we'll start with the acupuncture and the, the perfect formula for you, and then we'll see if there's any gaps. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that's the meaning of the word supplement as well. It's really just to supplement what's missing yeah 
Yeah. So you did say to keep the to unblock the chief pathways. The top ten things number five is keep the chief flowing. Yeah. There's a, I, I think there's a lot of things that can stop the chi flowing within a clinic. Um, it can be... So you mean in the clinic and in yourself and in the business as yeah. well as in the patient? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, we're always trying to rectify what's happening with someone's chi, but within the clinic I think it's really important. You know, anything that ranges ranges from a personality conflict within the clinic to having mess in the clinic to having plants that are sick and dying or even having no plants. I think all clinics should have plants. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a lot of things that we can do to keep the space clear and, you know, you can do it in a really formal and um, intellectual way via a feng shui approach where you can just do it based on an assessment of how you feel the energy in the clinic to be. And that's I think that's a really important thing to keep the chi flowing so that there's space, um, there's no stagnation that allows for better patient healing and, and even just keeping the space clear for new patients to be coming mm. and finding you as well. I think there's a connection with this one and the first one, getting on good terms with your cosmic receptionist. And also to keep the chi flowing between you and your physical receptionist. Yes. <laughs> and to keep everyone that works in the clinic, if you have a team situation, get sort of connected and bonded, especially if you have people who work on different days who never even see each other, but somehow you're all kind of part of this clinic family. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's really nice to just keep the warmth happening within those relationships as well. It gives a really nice feeling in the space for the patients that come in. Yeah. 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 Number six, knowledge and feelings of competency will wax and wane with time. I love this one. Sometimes you know a lot and then sometimes you go back to, I don't know much at all. Yeah, absolutely. I've experienced... So many cycles of this as a um, since I've been in clinic, and um, you know I, I went through a period of like two or three years where I had people coming in with colds and flus, and for the life of me, I could I just did not feel like I was doing a good job, and then all of a sudden something clicked, and then you know I'm giving amazing treatments now for cold and flu this season. I'm totally nailing it. Well, we're in Melbourne and so in Australia in the Southern Hemisphere we're just coming now into winter and cold and flu season. So for our listeners in uh, the Northern Hemisphere, it's, um, yeah, that's the context that we're in at the moment. So if you're down in Australia and you've got a cold and flu, <laughs> I am nailing it. I'm officially nailing it. But I have been for the last three years and it's kind of, you know, I had to go through sitting in this space of feeling like, wow, I just, you know, what's going on but now my treatments are better mm. and I think that you know it's sometimes it's really important to sit in that space of of um of not knowing so that you can then look deeper and look for things that you might have missed or things that you've taken for granted or um I really like the concept of uh, how our knowledge and our personal development grows is kind of like a spiral so we do keep cycling through 
relearning something. So even like when you're when you're at school and you have your four or five year Chinese medicine degree, you don't just hit upon a topic once. You know, you learn the channels every year, but each year you go into more detail and you learn on your point location exam. You have to get more more obscure points correct and the details more obscure points correct by the time you're in graduating year um, and I think that learning a lot of things is like that and it's very yin and yang and tide goes in tide goes out and then we repeat a topic it might be the sixth or the seventh time we've learned how to treat headaches or something like that but um, there's just that beautiful relationship with knowing what you know and feeling knowledgeable and then knowing what you, how much you don't know and feeling like very humbled and I know nothing. And yeah. yet that's the most beautiful space in which knowledge comes, that yeah. empty container. Absolutely. It yeah. reminds me of um, when I was doing my yoga teacher training and um, we spent a lot of time going through in depth the yoga sutras and one of the yoga sutras roughly translates to, um, you know, the gross becomes subtle and then the subtle becomes gross. Mm -hmm. And it's like this process where something, um, you know, you know something on a broad level and then you go and you learn the intricacies and you get down to the subtle detail and then all of a sudden the subtle becomes gross and then you're just like you're immersed in this 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 additional layer where there's even more to know and there's even more to comprehend and that you kind of you go that you go through that process and I really like that you know the um the people who were writing the yoga sutras way back when were acknowledging this is a really important part of learning and is a really important part of um even just the development of consciousness and the way that we explore ourselves internally and I think it's a it's a really important aspect of personal development to be able to sit in that space and to allow that process to unfold you know to go through periods of time where um, you know where you know a lot and then periods of time where you realize that the you know that what you knew and you thought you knew a lot you actually didn't really know much at all that there's all these layers that are beneath and you can just kind of keep delving and delving and delving one of my friends said to me once that you can really tell how well somebody knows a topic by how easily they could describe it in simple terms to a five-year-old. Mm. Yeah. And so they've been through that where at first it was the gross topic but they didn't have much knowledge and then they went into the details and if they were to explain it to you, it would take forever. Yeah. <laughs> and then it becomes gross again where you can just sum it up in really simple terms yeah. because yeah. the knowledge has, has depth and has become embodied. Um, and of course Chinese medicine is so deep that I think we can go through this multiple times with the same topic yeah number seven your reading list will never get shorter <laughs> <laughs> that's so true for me right now <laughs> I put that in as a real kind of like tongue-in-cheek because I used to joke that my reading list was about 10 years long and now I would definitely say that my reading list I, there is no way I'm going to get through my reading list before I die. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I, I could live to be 120 and I still wouldn't get through it all. It's just I think the more you learn, the more your knowledge and your thirst for knowledge 
increases and um, you meet interesting people who know more than you and then they tell you about books you don't know of yet that <laughs> their books get better too yeah yeah the books get better yeah number eight meet your patient where they are at then take them with you I think this is a really important one for particularly when you know making assumptions about what patients might be capable of and what they might be willing to do. Um, you know, you can get patients that are coming in and they've got real issues with, you know, addiction or real issues with, with their lifestyle and the way they prioritise uh, their health. I think the thing that's important to acknowledge is that, that they're actually there in your clinic. They've chosen you. Um and to assess, you know, what they're capable of doing. I, I do often ask my patients, you know, what, tell me about your capacity to take on board changes, you know, and what, what capacity do you have to make changes with regards to your diet, your lifestyle, you know, your working hours, your exercise, um, and go from there rather than just say, right, well, I need you to do all of these things, and if you can't do them, then, you know, then I'm not going to work with you. Or if you don't do them, you're not going to get better and bad luck. Yeah. Naughty you. <laughs> <laughs> I saw this one really interestingly recently with a, a practitioner of another modality who actually sends out a bunch of questionnaires before the first consult. And one of them is a compliance questionnaire. Mm. And rather than saying how compliant will you be, it breaks it down into these questions such as, you know, how do you deal with changes? How do you deal with changes in your diet? Or how, do you, how open do you feel to changing your lifestyle or your sleeping patterns? And it just fishes through these questions to have a look at where's the compliance starting point with this, uh, with this patient? And then that can become part of a discussion in the beginning. But because they've had to fill out the questionnaire in their own time before even attending the first consult, um, this practitioner had actually found that it really, really improves compliance and it really extends um, how far that patient's going to go with you, but you still meet them where they're at. Yeah, and that's think, a great idea. Yeah, we touched on this as well in our episode with Lonnie Jarrett um, in further detail. So I think the way he talked about this was also really interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you can go and listen to that one if that's sparked your interest. Number nine. Plan your day so your chi is in order and you get to eat properly. Yeah. It's pretty hard working on your ninth patient if you haven't had protein for a while or a little break. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. I think it's, um, it's very easy to get wrapped up in the, in the doing and to forget that, um, well, I think it's really important to walk the walk as well as talking the talk. And it's one thing to say to your patients, hey, you know, you need to, um, you know, not, not work too hard, you need to make sure you're eating well and not getting too stressed out. And um, it's very easy to get caught up, you know, particularly if you're in a, a busy clinic, very easy to get caught up in, the run of treating patients and then forget that, oh, wow, like I barely even had time to drink water, let alone, you know, I didn't have a lunch break. I've just worked six hours straight. I haven't had anything to eat. Um, it does interfere with your ability to um, properly engage with patients, I think. Um, I don't know. 
I'm sure there's people out there going, no, I can do it. I can work eight hours without a break and it's fine. But I think that ultimately, um, you know, we need to be really honest with ourselves and just really accepting that we're not superheroes. We're not gods. We're still people. We still function in the same way and we can take our herbs and we can, you know, we can do qigong and we can, you know, practice all kinds of um, wellness maintenance activities for ourselves as practitioners. But I think we still need to honour um, honor our physiology yeah, and, and take care of ourselves properly. <clears throat> Sometimes we're encouraging our patients to plan ahead so that they're not stuck with the limited food takeaway options that exist right near their workplace. And I think that also applies to us too, um, to be able to take care of those things in our lives and just not be stuck with the food that's subpar down the road from, from where we're working yeah. Yeah. And lucky last, number 10, don't overwork in terms of the hours that you do and make sure that you take time off and have holidays. Yeah. It's really, I remember it was something I struggled with a lot in my first years in practice, especially. Um, you know, I was really keen to build up my practice and build up my client base. Um, and at one stage, you know, I was working two jobs and um, I had a um, I had a part-time office job that I had that paid that paid the way and you know all of the money that I made from my clinic I was reinvesting into my clinic and building my clinic and growing the clinic and you know I worked six days a week for a, a few years and it was really it was really taxing on me and then the, just the thought of the concept of taking time off was just so just left me breathless sometimes, like, oh, my God, how am I going to do this? Um, and even just concern, I know that, um, you know, people sometimes have concern for their patients, that their patients might feel abandoned or, um, you know, that they don't want to interrupt the continuity of care with their patients. But I think that ultimately if you frame it in, a, in the right way and if you feel, if you think about it in the right way for yourself, that, you know, we should be taking holidays. We should actually be having more holidays than the average person. I think that for me, well, for me in general, I think that from what I've seen that people or practitioners don't seem to do well if they're working more than four days a week with patients. Those days might be really full days and they might be 10-hour days, but I think having three days off in a week is important and two of those days need to be consecutive. Um, and I see that practitioners tend to do better if they have around eight weeks a year off rather than the traditional four weeks in Australia, but I think it's even less in the US, isn't it? Not sure, but you guys can tell us <laughs> what's happening over there. <laughs> you guys need more holidays. Yeah, <laughs> we're here to tell you the relaxed Aussie way. And it, it can be tricky, though, organising time off like I've had a, a couple of years in the last 11 years of practicing where I have taken off several months to go traveling or to go and do something more so to do with my personal development and that really does take a big toll on your clinic so in terms of having your time off and figuring out your hours it's, it's really good to look at what would be ideal for you and, um, you know, if you want to work four days a week, try and find a way to make that work. 
And if you feel better having two weeks off every three months, try and find a way to make that work and to build that into your practice as well in a way whereby it's not such a shock for your patients. And Hmm. um, I don't know how others feel about having a locum, but my experiences with it is that often it doesn't work very well because they're not you. Yeah. And we all practice so uniquely um, that if your patients want to see you, they want to see you. They don't want to see your locum. So uh, for me, I've discovered that taking more frequent holidays but for less lengthy periods of time is definitely a better choice um, in terms of business. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One thing in particular in terms of taking time off, um, you know, women who are pregnant and go on maternity leave, that was definitely the biggest stretch of time that I ever took off from practice and it really, um, you know, it really changed um, the dynamic with a lot of patients. You know, patients can um, get really, really unsettled when you're away for two or three weeks and then if you're away for like four months or six months it's um you know it's quite tricky even if you find a really good a good match for covering you know for someone to cover you on maternity leave or for instance if you work in a group practice um i think it definitely does alter the dynamic and you know how do you best plan for that i mean that's a whole different i think that's a whole separate episode but I think it's really important to, um, you know, to make sure that outside of your concerns for the practicalities of what might happen to your business, it might not be detrimental to your bookings. It might be something that becomes really beneficial. But um, I think it's really important to um, to plan the time off that you need first and foremost, and then make um, like make plans around that for how you're going to make it work. Mm. Yes, and we'd love to hear from you how you make it work and what other topics would be in your top 10 things that every practitioner should know because it's not just about what we think you should know. We'd like to know what you think we should know and what other people should know because I think it's really beneficial for all of us to have this kind of group support and discussion that will bring up the ideas we might not have thought of. So if you've got anything to add, please add it on our Facebook page, Heavenly Chi. And thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. Bye.